I'm Andrew O'Hagan, host of a new podcast from the London Review of Books. It's about the bloodiest and most controversial event of the Falklands War, the sinking of the General Belgrano. Margaret Thatcher was accused of a war crime. The truth would only emerge in the pages of a private diary. This is the Belgrano Diary. Listen wherever you get your podcasts. You're listening to a London Review of Books podcast. Well, uh, thank you very much all for coming on such a cold night. And to Neil and the LRB for uh, inviting me. Now, I know the LRB well. I've been writing for it for a long time. And I think the instructions are usually very clear from the editor. Be conversational. So I'll try not to get too angry today. Uh, If we look at what is going on today, it's astonishing that after all the hopes that were aroused in some, that with the end of the Cold War, the collapse of one enemy, the end of um, authoritarian rule in parts of Eastern Europe, the end of the dictatorships in South America, uh, that there was some hope, there was talk even of a peace dividend, and in reality, what we have seen is wars, upheavals, religious intolerance, jihadi fundamentalism, continuous wars in parts of Africa, some of which aren't even discussed in polite society, like what's been going on in the Congo, where the figures of people killed in the civil war being waged by Sometimes you feel corporations which have armies to get the wealth of that country. The figures have reached at least four to five million dead, if not more. Um, And then we have a growing feeling that actually democracy and democratic institutions themselves are not functioning as they should. And in fact, we are living in a sort of twilight period of democracy itself. So what I want to do this evening is try and explain how I see this. And I think a starting point has to be what happened in the 90s on a global scale, which was the implosion of the old Soviet Union uh, and the and the collapse, the demonstrations, the taking over of Eastern Europe, by who? In many cases, by former bureaucrats within the Communist Party apparatuses who, seeing their chance, both in the Soviet Union and Eastern Europe, became the new millionaires and billionaires. If you look at the oligarchs now buying pads all over the world, including this city, you will see that many of them actually were former members of the communist parties. And they decided to go that way. When the time came, many of them had been opportunists for some time with no sense of commitment 
to anything except power and lining their own pockets. It doesn't just apply to them. It applies to politicians in Western Europe as well, as we will be discussing. So the, 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 the foundation moment, the foundational moment for what we are seeing today, the, the big disorders, uh, began for me in the 1990s with the collapse of one power system and the creation of a whole vacuum all over the world, which had been filled by different things in different parts of the world, including, incidentally, religion. And not just Islam. But if you look at the statistics and figures of the growth of religion, and the decline in agnosticism and even atheism in the Western world, the figures are quite dramatic. I mean, for some countries, they've always been there, but by and large, there's been an increase in religiosity and religious belief in the West as well, which is something we should not forget because one of the countries where it's increased is France, uh, which is currently being in the news. Combined with this process, uh, we have seen the rise of something which has never been experienced in the history of humanity before, the emergence of a global empire, the United States, with enormous power and enormous strength and unchallengeable militarily. Not politically, not economically, though it's difficult, but unchallengeable militarily. And this empire and its, the hegemony it has exercised in the world is now dominating global politics, even the politics of those who are suddenly being treated as its enemies. I mean, if you look... Uh, at, for instance, the sudden demonization of Putin, which is relatively new, and compare that to how Yeltsin was treated at a time when he was committing many, many more atrocities than Putin has been charged with in Chechnya, destroying the entire city of Grozny, you begin to understand that what is at stake is not any norms, uh, not any conventions, not any principles, but effectively the interests of the world's largest and only global empire. I don't think there has been one before, and I don't think there will be one later. And so I think a great deal depends here in terms of what actually happens inside the United States itself, its population, its citizens, its numerous minorities, its politics. Because one thing we have to state at the very beginning, which many scholars, American historians have remarked on, that despite the enormous economic growth of the United States, the industrial growth of the past, the fact that it's in the United States that we saw the most startling economic development and innovation with the emergence of the IT world. I mean, that happened on the West Coast, and it wasn't accidental that it happened in the West Coast. 
didn't happen in Europe, didn't happen in the Far East. And it's been transformative uh, for all the world. Uh, so despite these advances in capitalism and capitalist technology, the actual political structure of the United States has not changed much for 100, 150 years. So it may be economically advanced, which it is, and even culturally so, as its soft power dominates the world, but its own political structures virtually remain unchanged. And this contradiction, I think, will have to come to a head sooner or later at some stage when the American population feels that it's time to do so. It may be influenced by events abroad, but how it will change will be from within. I say this because a huge debate takes place on the subject around the following issues. A, is the American empire in decline? And there is a huge literature of declinism in which people are producing books in different parts of the world saying that this decline is not only started, it's happened, and it is irreversible. I seriously regard this view as nonsensical. It's wishful thinking. I think that the American empire has had setbacks, but which empire doesn't? I mean, it had setbacks in the 60s and 70s and 80s in different parts of the world. The defeat it suffered in Vietnam in 75, people thought was definitive at the time. It could never rise again. Not, not true. And it hasn't suffered a setback on that scale since that time. And I say this not because I want this be, to be the case, but because it is the case. And unless we know and understand how this empire functions globally, it's very difficult, really, to propose any set of strategies to defeat it, if you like, or to send it, you know, make it return as the late Chalmers Johnson and as John Mearsheimer and other realist theorists in the United States who dismantle the bases, get out of the rest of the world, uh, and only operate on a global scale if we are actually threatened as a country. Drop the empire. Many realists in the United States are arguing this, uh, but they're arguing from a point of weakness in the sense that what they regard as irreversible setbacks, some of them, in my opinion, are not so. There are very few reversals from which imperial states cannot recover unless there is a challenge. And here, a comparison with the British Empire, I think, is extremely useful because people, some of the arguments are on a simplistic level, which say all empires collapse historically. Well, this is, of course, true. But there are contingent reasons for that collapse. And I think at the present moment, the, uh, despite its setbacks in different parts of the world, the United States remains a strong and dominant empire, its soft power all over the world, 
including in the heartlands of its economic rivals, its hard power still quite dominant, enabling it to occupy countries, and its political, ideological power still very strong in, to mention uh, one continent, Europe. If it has suffered setbacks on a semi-continental scale, they have been in South America. And interestingly enough, these setbacks have been political and ideological rather than economic. I mean, the chain of electoral victories for political parties and movements in Venezuela, in Ecuador, in uh, Bolivia, partially in Brazil and elsewhere, have been extremely important for showing what? For showing that there is a different alternative possible within capitalism. There has been no frontal challenge to the capitalist system as such. And even today, when we'll come to Europe, the victory of Syriza in Greece, the rise of Podemos in Spain, two radical parties of the left, Neither of these parties are posing a systemic challenge to the system. The challenge that they are posing is effectively one which in this country we could compare to the reforms pushed through by Clement Attlee as leader of the Labour Party in 1945. Virtually all the programmatic uh, points implemented by the parties in South America are effectively left social democratic reforms. What Syriza is arguing for is the same. What Podemos in Spain is arguing for is the same. But social democratic reforms have become intolerable for the neoliberal economic system imposed by global capital on the world. And that's where the danger lies. Because if you begin to argue, as those in power do, if not explicitly, implicitly, that the only, the only way forward is to have a political structure in which no challenge to the functioning of the system as it is today is permitted, then we are in dangerous times because that means that there are no political alternatives left within the confines of capitalism, and that can lead, actually, to forms of authoritarianism within the capitalist world today, which we witness even as we speak. The elevation of terrorism into a threat which is supposed to be the equivalent of the communist empire of old? Bizarre. The use of this word... Bills being pushed through Parliament and the American uh, uh, Congress to stop people speaking, to vet people who speak at universities, to say that outside speakers have to be asked what they're going to say before they're allowed into the country. I mean, these seem minor things, but they are actually uh, emblematic of the age <clears throat> in which we live. And the ease with which all this is accepted sometimes is quite frightening. 
Because if citizens of these countries fail to rise in protest at these measures and punish the parties who carry them through, then we're going to be stuck for a long time. From that point of view, it appears that this century, the 21st century, is going to be a long century. It's not going to be a short one. If what we are being told is that all that is possible is what exists, then we're going to be in for some trouble. Because ultimately it won't be accepted. And if you prevent people from speaking or thinking or developing political alternatives, left social democratic alternatives, it's not just the ideas of Karl Marx which are threatened or attacked, that's more understandable from the point of view of capitalism. It's the ideas of Karl Polyani, a major social democratic thinker, and an extremely intelligent one, which are also under attack and being challenged. And that is why we have seen developing on the political front of the neoliberal world order a form of government which I have described as the extreme center, which governs large tracts of Europe, uh, and which includes the left, center, left, center, right, center parties, all merged. When choices are offered at elections, nothing fundamental changes so that a whole layer of young people in particular, but not just them, feel that voting makes no difference at all, given the political parties we have. And this extreme center wages wars, on, either on its own accord or on behalf of the United States. It backs austerity measures. It defends surveillance as absolutely necessary to defeat terrorism without ever asking why this terrorism is happening. To question this is almost to be a terrorist yourself. To ask what are the reasons these young people are going and allowing themselves and committing suicide, whether on 9-11 or July the 7th or the latest events in France, why do they do it? Are they just crazy? Is it something which emerges from deep inside their religion. I mean, this sort of debate is completely counterproductive and useless. A, because it's not based on any realities at all. I mean, if you were to ask, is American imperial policy, is British foreign policy, is French foreign policy, in any way responsible of this, you're constantly attacked. But of course, the intelligence agencies, the security services, know perfectly well that this is the case. That the reason for people going crazy, and it is a form of that, is because of what they see. The July the 7th, one of the uh, associates of the July the 7th bombers, who didn't participate in it but was aware of it, when he was captured in Italy, 
and interviewed by the Italian security services, he was asked, well, why do you do it? Is it the Quran? And he said, are you crazy? What do you think we are? We just do nothing else but we read the Quran the whole time, 24 hours of the day? He said, no, we were watching videos of Fallujah and what was being done to Iraq. That is what made us angry. What's it got to do with the Quran? And they, they were shocked, but you know, they know this. They know this, and this is a question that the establishments can't answer. Their own responsibility for what is happening in the world, why it has become such a disordered world. And <clears throat> let's take two basic examples. One, to explain what happens when a country is destroyed, a country like Iraq. Now, in the, before the war, when you said this, you were accused of being a Saddam Hussein apologist. Very few people say that now, by the way. That Iraq, under an authoritarian dictatorship of Saddam Hussein and his predecessor, was a country with the highest level of education in the Middle East, with functioning universities, with Baghdad University in the 1980s, just to make this point, had more women professors than Princeton did in 2009. That there were nursery facilities so that women could come and teach at schools and universities. There was no democracy accepted. But in terms of the social level of the population, <clears throat> it was very high. In Baghdad, and particularly the city of Mosul, currently occupied by the Islamic State, you had libraries going back centuries. The Mosul Library was functioning in the 8th century with manuscripts, ancient manuscripts from ancient Greece, apart from anything else, in, in its vaults. The Baghdad Library, as we know, was looted after the occupation of that country without anyone preventing it. And we know perfectly well what is going on now to the libraries in Mosul under the Islamic State. So how did this happen automatically? It's a consequence of that disastrous war, which assumed genocidal proportions. The numbers of people who died in Iraq are disputed because the coalition of the willing, as it was called, don't count civilian casualties of the country they're occupying. Why should they bother? And so the figures we've worked out, or they've been worked out by Lancet and the John Hopkins Medical Department, are that up to a million Iraqis died in that occupation, mainly civilians. So the process we saw, the, 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 the sanctions imposed on Iraq after the first Gulf War, began to wreck its in social infrastructure. The actual occupation of the country and the removal of the government is one of the most destructive acts, really, in modern history. 
because even though Hiroshima and Nagasaki were nuked, the actual social and political structure of the Japanese state was maintained. Because while the uh, Germans were defeated, the Italians were defeated in the Second World War, quite a lot of their military structures, intelligence structures, police structures, judicial structures were kept going because there was another enemy already in the offing, communism. But in the case of Iraq, <clears throat> they were treated like no other country had been treated. And people don't realize this, because once the occupation happened, all the correspondents came back home, by and large, with the exception of a few, largely. I mean, you can count them on the fingers of a hand in this country, Patrick Coburn, Bob Fisk, one or two others, and that's it. And that is also <clears throat> dangerous in terms of the information and knowledge provided to people as to what is actually happening to a country that they've occupied. And I think one reason that Blair is utterly loathed by large numbers of people now is because many supported him and then later saw through it and, told and realized that they'd been lied to. And for that, he won't be forgiven. The same applies to you know, leaders in Europe who did the same. The country's social infrastructure still is not working. After, you know, years after the occupation, it's been wrecked and destroyed. And it, that country will never be the same again. It's been demodernized. That's what the West has done in Iraq, demodernized the country, destroyed its education services, destroyed its medical services, literally in many cases handed over power to a group of clerical Shia parties who immediately embarked on bloodbaths of revenge. 1,200 university professors were killed. 1,200. <clears throat> if this is not disorder, what is? I won't go on about Afghanistan because we now know, I mean, the whole world knows that this big attempt to go and as... Uh, the, the United States and the British leaders put it to modernize the country. I mean, Sherry Blair and Laura Bush said, we're actually going to save women. It's a war for women's liberation. If it had been, it would have been the first time in history, but never mind. We now know what it was. A crude war of revenge which has failed because the occupation actually strengthened those it had gone to destroy. And it's not only destroyed that country and what infrastructure it had, but it's destabilized a neighboring country, Pakistan, which has nuclear weapons, and which is now in a very dangerous state as well. So these two wars have not done any good to anyone, not even the Americans, who are very discredited as a result. But what they have done is to divide and break up the Muslim world, the Arab world, and what they have done, and that, of course, whether it was intended or 
whether these were the unintended consequences of a war in which nobody knew what the war aims were. Once you'd taken the country, there was no big mis you know, doubt as the American military power would take Iraq. What then? What then was total dismantlement of anything that had been uh, uh, useful to the population and the creation of a Sunni-Shia divide by handing over power to clerical parties of the Shia, which then started disappearing people, ethnic cleansings in Baghdad, which used to be a very mixed city, a country where there were intermarriages between Sunni and Shia. <clears throat> and this, supervised by the Americans, the big attack on the Sunnis as being all Saddam supporters, which was crazy. Numerous Sunnis suffered jail sentences under him, as well as Shia. But this, <clears throat> the creation of this divide, has basically ended Arab nationalism for a long time to come. Gone. So the battles now are on who the big power backs, in which conflicts. In Iraq, they back the Shia. And you know, this whole uh, demonization of Iran is very unfair, because the reality is that without the support of the Iranians, tacit support of the Iranians, there is no way the Americans could have taken Iraq. And the resistance which began in Iraq against the occupation was getting somewhere when the Iranians told Muqtada al-Sadr and his group, which was participating with the Sunnis against the occupation, to call it off. He was taken to Tehran and <laughs> given a holiday there for a year. So without the Iranian support, in, either, in both Iraq and Afghanistan, it would have been very difficult for the United States to occupy that country. And the thanks Iran got was sanctions being demonized, still further double standards being used. Israel can have nuclear weapons, you can't, which again creates a great deal of uh, anger. So the Middle East is now in a total mess. The central, most important power is Israel, expanding away. The Palestinians have been defeated for a very long time to come, in my opinion. All the principal Arab countries wrecked. First Iraq, now Syria. Egypt, a brutal military dictatorship in power torturing, killing, just like before, as if the Arab Spring had never happened, and for the military leaders, it hadn't. And at the same time, the balance shifts to these tiny little principalities. Qatar, the UAE, Kuwait, Bahrain, where there was a rebellion, was crushed by the Saudis with the backing of the United States. And then there is, of course, Saudi Arabia. And these are the countries which are economically and politically taken very seriously by the West, <clears throat> as most of you have witnessed. I think this is the first time that flags flew at half-mast for the death of a Saudi monarch. 
And if things carry on going the way, it'll be the same when the Qatari Sheikh dies too. And Bahrain. So it's a dangerous situation. I won't dwell too long on the Palestine-Israeli dispute. This is a subject which deserves to be treated on its own. But here, too, the completely blind support for Israel from the United States and from the Congress, just quite shocking. The extent of it, and to question it nowadays, is to be labeled an anti-Semite. And by the way, I pointed out many a time to Israelis I've debated with, it's a very dangerous thing I said that you're doing by saying that anyone who, and it's a deliberate thing from the top after the uh, second intifada, that anyone who criticizes Israel is an anti-Semite or a self-hating Jew. They both are the same for them. Uh, I said the danger is that to a generation which has no experience of the Holocaust except in movies or the Judeo side, to say to these kids, if you attack Israel, you're anti-Semitic, the reply will come, okay, so what? So we are. What are you going to do about it? And those of us who warned them of this three, four years ago, now you see it happening. The Israelis say it's anti-Semitic to attack Israel. People say, okay. Kids, especially young people, say, fine, call us anti-Semitic if you want. If that means opposing you, we are. So it hasn't helped anyone, uh, this particular thing. And there's, it's just inconceivable that any Israeli government is going to grant the Palestinians a, a Palestinian state. That is obvious. That is gone. And as the late Edward Said warned us, the uh, Oslo Accords were a Palestinian Treaty of Versailles. Actually, they are much worse than the Treaty of Versailles. And so this particular source shows no sign of healing. And it is going to carry on as before. So the breakup, the disintegration of the Middle East that was born after the First World War <clears throat> is carrying on. Um, whether Iraq will be divided into three countries, whether Syria will be divided into two or three countries, we don't know. But it wouldn't surprise me if it were. It wouldn't surprise me if all the states in that region, barring Egypt, which is too large to dismantle, were dismantled and became tiny little Bantustans or tiny principalities on the model of Qatar and uh, uh, the other Gulf states, and funded and kept going by the Saudis on the one hand and the Iranians on the other, the different factions within that world. So it's not looking promising there. And all the hopes raised by the Arab Spring really uh, went under. And I think it's important to understand why they went under. It's because many of them, of those who participated in these movements, did not see, for generational reasons largely, that in order to really hit home, you did have to have some form of political movement. 
so that when the Muslim Brotherhood, which had participated in the Egyptian movement at a later stage, took power, it was not surprising. They were the only political party that was active there. How could they not, is the question. The people who were hostile to them within the movement had no alternative. And so they suffered. And then the Muslim Brotherhood played straight into the hands of the military by behaving largely like Mubarak did, offering deals to the security services, saying, carry on working for us like you did with Mubarak, offering deals to the Israelis, saying, we'll be just like Mubarak was. And then people began to say, if you're going to be just like them, what the hell is the point of having you in power at all? And the military then behaved very cleverly in the way it mobilized some mass support and got rid of them. It hasn't solved anything, but it's demoralized an entire generation in the Middle East. Let's come closer to home now. Because if this is the situation in the Middle East, what is the situation in Europe? I think the first point that has to be made is that there is not a single country in the European Union that, that enjoys sovereignty so far. The German state, even after the end of the Cold War, after the unity, has become a very important state in Europe, which is hardly a surprise, but it doesn't have 100% sovereignty. The United States is still very dominant on many levels, especially the military level. Britain, which became a semi-vassal state after the Second World War, now then, under, after, under Thatcher, I mean, the last British prime minister to display some element of sovereignty, I mean, there were two. Wilson refused to dispatch British troops to Vietnam, and Edward Heath refused to allow British bases to be used to bomb the Middle East in uh, the 70s. Uh, apart from these two prime ministers, subsequently, uh, it's been very clear I mean, virtually complete a vassal status. And not with the support even of large chunks, I would say, of the British establishment. There was a great deal of anger within the Foreign Office during the Iraq War because they felt there was no need for Britain to be involved. And I remember, I recall this event with great pleasure. I was invited in 2003 and the war was going on, to give a lecture in Damascus, in Syria. And I went to give this lecture, and I, before I left, I got a phone call from the British Embassy in Damascus, saying, hello, I'm so-and-so, the secretary to the ambassador, and we know this is unusual, you'll consider this unusual, but he's very keen you come and have lunch uh, with us when you're in Damascus. So I thought this was quite odd. I said, yes, fine, okay. Um, and I arrived at lunch, greeted by the ambassador, who said, just to reassure you, we won't just be eating, we'll be talking politics. And uh, 
I said, that is very reassuring. And he said, and he said, We've, I've invited people from every single faction in Syria to the lunch. I said, better still. I said, including the government. He said, yes, there'll be senior figures from the regime here. I said, okay. So he said, I'll, it'll be answers and questions. I said, this is a long time ago, which is why I'm revealing it now, because it's, he's retired since. But, um, so he, he said, uh, at the lunch, he said, uh, now it's time for questions. I'll start off. So the guests looked at him and said, fine. And he said, Tariq Ali, I read that piece you wrote in The Guardian two, three weeks ago, arguing that Tony Blair should be charged for war crimes in the International Criminal Court. I said, yes, this is accurate. He said, do you mind explaining to us why? Well, I spent about 10 minutes explaining to him why, to the bemusement of the Syrians who didn't know what was going on in the British embassy. And so I said, um, yeah, I explained. And the ambassador said, any supplementaries? They said, no. And he said, well, I agree totally with that. I don't know about the rest of you. Uh, and so we went on with other questions and answers, none as pointed as this, but along similar lines. And after all the guests had left, I said, well, that was very courageous of you. And the MI6 guy who's at the lunch said, yeah, he can do that because he's retiring in December. <laughs> but... <clears throat> And a, a, a similar thing happened at the embassy in Vienna, by the way, where I gave a press conference attacking the Iraq war in the living room of the British ambassador in that lovely old palatial building in Vienna, which indicated, I mean, these guys are not fools, you know, they knew exactly what they were doing. And it was the humiliation of having a government which even though the Americans have said we can do it without you, if there's dissent at home, Bush said, I'll understand, don't come, insisted on going. And it was that, the, the, the sort of self-humiliation of a vassal state that I think antagonized lots of members, certainly of the foreign policy, and I would say probably also of the defense establishment, who felt that Britain wasn't prepared for this at all. But that all seems to have, have uh, <clears throat> quietened, quietened uh, uh, down. And, but what is, uh, I, I started by talking about, on uh, Europe, about the lack of sovereignty. The largest country, the Germans, know they don't have sovereignty. When you raise it with them, as I often do at meetings in Germany, they shrug their shoulders. They know. Many of them don't want it either because they're over-concerned with their past, uh, as if it was almost genetic that all Germans like fighting wars. You know, an utterly ludicrous uh, view of the world, which unfortunately some people who should know better have raised again in marking the anniversaries <clears throat> of the First World War. But never mind. The fact is that 
politically and ideologically and militarily and even economically, the European Union is very much under the thumb of the global imperial uh, power. I mean, so much so that when uh, the euro elite was offering a very pitiful sum of money to the Greeks, not even this government, but the previous government, Tim Giesner, the Secretary of the Treasury, had to intervene and said, look, this is ridiculous. You've got to give them at least 500 billion. They were offering 50. And at first they hummed and hawed, and finally they said, you're right, and did what the Americans wanted. So all the hopes that had been aroused in Europe from the time the European idea was first mooted of having an independent Europe, at that time they used to say independent of the big powers, the United States and the Soviet Union, charting its own way in the world, which was certainly the aim of de Gaulle and others that followed. Um, but that Europe disappeared once the Cold War ended. It, when you would have felt it could actually become that since there was no enemy in that sense of the world, that particular Europe was effectively made into a, a banker's Europe, a Europe of money, a Europe of without a, a social uh, vision, uh, which it could easily have had and challenged uh, the neoliberal order, but they couldn't do it. And many of them didn't want to do it. And the result is now a huge European crisis. I mean, the latest report from the McKinsey Global Institute, which the Financial Times highlighted on its front page yesterday, shows that since the 2008 crash, which should have been a wake-up call for the Europeans, actually the debt has mounted. The whole world is now in debt, including countries like China, which weren't previously to that extent indebted. And so uh, a crash, another crash and a recession is very possible, is the logic of this. So punishing the Greeks to the extent that they are being punished for being in debt when they are far from the only ones suffering this condition is really appalling. And what it shows is that the punishment of the Greeks is not because they are in debt, because the right-wing government that Syriza defeated could only push through, I think, three of the 14 reforms demanded by the EU. They couldn't do it either, because already pushing some of them through have created a situation in Greece which is not on a par with Iraq, but there are elements of the same, a demodernization, privatizations, totally unnecessary privatizations linked to political corruption. All this is going on, whereas the lives of ordinary people have been miserable, absolutely miserable. And we've been watching it, those of us who go to that country a great deal, like me, I do, uh, have been watching it and have been seeing very little of this actually reported on the media the, of the European uh, 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 community. 
the EU press. The actual detailed account of what people have been going through. So at last they elect a government which offers to change things like the South Americans did and very influenced by the South Americans, both in Greece and in Spain, the Podemos. And they're told no. They're frightened now for domino effect that if the Greeks are rewarded for having done this, other countries might do the same. So crush them. So two days ago, the European Central Bank goes out of its way to humiliate the Greeks, which they didn't have to do, but they did it. And the German uh, economics minister says, we can't help. We know what the Greek electorate wants, but we have an electorate too. I mean, that, in a curious way, I understand much more because there's great unrest in Germany about the fact that the German banks are having to foot the bills. But they're not only footing the bills, they're also getting a lot of money. As the new finance minister, uh, Yanis Varoufakis, a friend of mine, when I wrote to him to congratulate him on becoming finance minister, the reply came, uh, the dangers of a coup these days come not from tanks, but from banks. It's absolutely true. Absolutely true. So while the Greeks can't be kicked out of the European Union, that is not permitted by the Constitution, unless it's amended. They can't even be kicked out of the Eurozone. That is not possible. But life can be made so difficult for them that in order to serve the needs of the people who they've promised to protect, which is why they've been voted into power, they might have to leave the euro and set up a, a euro Greece, a Greek euro or a euro drachma, or a currency, a temporary currency, so that the country keeps on moving. At the same time, arguing their positions in all the European Union institutions from which they cannot be excluded. But it's a difficult one, this, because temporarily, were that to happen, conditions would get worse. There's no doubt about that, which is why the Greek government is resisting it. But they might have to go down that route, and at, the, at least they're telling the people everything. Every single day at press conferences, they're saying, this is what we've been asked to do. <clears throat> this is what you elected us not to do. And the choices are very difficult, either to capitulate to the EU, in which case there'll be a wave of revulsion against the left in Greece, and people will say, so you're just like all the others. And the danger now here is not that something more to the left will emerge, but people could shift in this volatile atmosphere very, very rapidly to the right. And the golden dawn is an not just a neo-Nazi group, it's an explicitly fascist group, which parades the swastika and marks Hitler's birthdays and whatever else, and is violent, carried out pogrom of immigrants in Athens and other cities. So that is the scale of the problem. And for the Euro elite to behave as it's doing, as the extreme center, in other words, is very short-sighted and very foolish. We come now to the 
third big development in the world this century and the last years, last decades of the previous century, it's been the rise of China. And there's no doubt uh, that Chinese, you know, enormous gains that have been made by capitalism in China, industrialization reaching amazing levels. Uh, the figures, if you look at them, are quite astonishing of uh, how much the Chinese and American economies were interdependent. Um, I, I remember I was once uh, speaking and uh, giving a lecture in the States and some old veteran from the labor movement said to me, but comrade, what has happened to the American working class? And I said, it's all in China now. Because they're producing the bulk of the goods that you need and you require. And this is all true. But again, to discourage any notions that China is about to replace the United States, <clears throat> let me uh, uh, point out that there's nothing, you know, it's not even remotely close to doing that. All the figures now produced by economists, scholarly economists and others, show that on where it counts, what they call the uh, millionaire households and system integrators, it means the dominant sections of the economy, the Chinese are still way behind. I mean, if you look at national shares of world millionaire households in 2012, America, United States, 42.5%, China, 9.4%. Uh, Japan is above China at 10.6%, Britain 3.7%, Switzerland 29 Germany 2.7%, Taiwan 2.3%, Italy 2 France 1.9%. So in terms of economic strength, even though the United States suffers occasionally, where it matters, uh, they are still doing well, the American economy. And in most of the crucial markets for the production of spare parts for aeroplanes, for key computer systems, pharmaceuticals, medical equipment, the United States dominant, and together with Europe produces 80% of these system integrators. The Chinese are nowhere, or you know, on a very tiny percentage on that front. The figures in 2010 showed us that three quarters of China's top 200 exporting companies, and these are Chinese statistics, three quarters of them are foreign owned. They're not even owned by the Chinese millionaires or by the Chinese state directly. There's a lot of foreign investment, often from neighboring countries. Taiwan, for instance, the Chinese company that produces a lot of computers for Apple, but yet Apple makes the dominant profits, the Chinese profits are very low, and even 
higher than the actual Chinese profits are the profits of those who actually control and own these companies, which is a company in Taiwan, tiny little island. So this somehow automatic notion that the Chinese, because they are doing much better than before, are going to suddenly rise to power and replace the United States is really a lot of baloney. I don't believe it militarily, I don't believe it economically and politically, ide ideologically. Uh, it's obvious that that is not the case. When the British Empire was on the decline, decades before that, people knew it was on the decline. I mean, the British establishment, of course, the cleverer ones amongst them were aware there were problems, especially after the First World War, leave alone the Second. But prior to the First World War, there was a lot of triumphalism. And uh, the English colonial geographer, Mackinder, coined a ditty, which was basically designed for German and English years, to show the Germans we have an empire and you don't. And the ditty went like this. Who rules East Europe commands the heartland. Who rules the heartland commands the world island. Britain. Who rules the world island commands the world. And there was, of course, a strong element of truth in that which was the reason, in my opinion, the basic reason for both the First and the Second World War, that this new country built by Bismarck said, we are a major power in Europe, but how come France and Britain have more parts of the world than we do? And so the First World War was a war fought for colonies, an imperial conquest. The notion that Britain participated in that war to help Belgium is you know, so pathetic that one shouldn't take it seriously. And if one does, one should then say, was Belgium worthy of this help? When King Leopold, in the early years of that century, had wiped out with his government, according to historians now, between 9 and 11 million Congolese. 9 and 11 million Congolese. So it wasn't plucky little Belgium. It was disgusting colonial little Belgium, which was actually doing this. And the, of course, the, the, the triumph of the Russian revolutionaries, they paid a lot of attention to this, what was happening in the world, who was going to succeed. And both Lenin and Trotsky, the most capable leaders of that revolution, said the Brits are going down. It's obvious. And the Americans are the future power, and we have to think about that. And in fact, there's a wonderful speech in 1924 at a conference to discuss the world economy, the section to discuss the world economy at the Communist <laughs> International, uh, where Trotsky, uh, in his inimitable fashion, made the following pronouncement. Their English bourgeois character has been molded in the course of centuries. <clears throat> Class self-esteem has entered into their blood and bones. 
it will be much harder to knock the self-confidence of world rulers out of them. But the American will knock it out just the same when he gets seriously down to business. In vain does the British bourgeois console himself that he will serve as a guide for the inexperienced American. <laughs> yes, there will be a transitional period, but the crux of the matter does not lie in the habits of diplomatic leadership, but in actual power, existing capital, and industry. And the United States, if we take its economy, from oats to big battleships of the latest type, occupies the first place. They produce all the living necessities to the extent of one-half to two-thirds of what is produced by all mankind. And of course, this prediction, which now seems banal, uh, proved to be absolutely right. But the reason I've read it out to you is to say that let's put, if we were to change this language and instead of the British English bourgeois character, say the American bourgeois character has now been molded in the course of centuries, etc., etc., but the Chinese will knock it out just the same when they get seriously down to business. Just doesn't make sense. Not just culturally or you know, linguistically, it doesn't make sense economically or politically, even though a lot of the world's actual consumer goods on a lower scale are produced in China. Militarily, they are way behind the United States, and so they should be. It's very foolish when I hear some people say, oh, we want more inter-imperial contradiction and more inter-imperial wars, and the ones who are cheering on Putin to take on the United States. It's just foolish, and it doesn't make sense, because they can't do it. And why do we want more wars anyway? We have to devise a, 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 a strategy to end them. Not easy. But that has uh, uh, got something we, we, we have to strive towards. Um, where are we going to end up at the end of this century? It's a very difficult one. Mm, a very, very difficult one. Where is China going to be? Will China remain united? Uh, is Western democracy going to flourish? All the indications are that neither is going to be the case. I don't think China is going to break up. The one thing the Chinese will defend is their borders and their sovereignty. But the problem about having a single imperial power in the world for its allies, not its rivals, is that it is the only sovereign power. And it decides and determines what this sovereignty is, uh, is going to be. I mean, there are many things happening in the world today which one can note. They're not of the sort that are going to be permanent because they're not strong enough to be permanent. The South Americans are not strong enough to resist the full might of the United States. And attempts being made today by Washington to destabilize the Venezuelan regime yet again, mainly not because they feel it's a threat, but because it's got oil. And they've attacked their oil-producing rivals by lowering the 
by increasing the production of Saudi oil, which is a clever way to go. At one go, then, you uh, cut down Putin to size in the way of Washington's thinking, reduce Venezuela's income, because a large amount of the oil money was being spent for social services, education, health, etc., 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 and Iran, which supplies China. <clears throat> with oil, but China is also supplied by Saudi Arabia. So it doesn't affect China to that uh, extent. So as always, the question remains, what is to be done? What is going to happen? I think you know one thing one has learned over the last decades is that nothing happens unless people want it to happen. And if people want it to happen, then they start moving. The Wall Street crash, which created this recent recession of 2008, you would have thought that the Europeans would have learned some lessons and would have acted, but they didn't. They just put sticking plaster on the wounds and hoped that the, uh, you know, the, the blood would be stemmed. But it hasn't been. It's carried on continuously since that time. And we are now, seven years later, entering 2015, and informed by the top experts in the field that debt is right up there. I mean, the figures, I thought I'd brought them with me, are, are quite shocking in terms of where the debt is and, uh, and what it's uh, reached. I think I forgot them. Um, um, so what, who is going to solve this? I mean, you have to look, look at different ways of running countries and running the world. And interestingly enough, one of the more creative thinkers today is uh, the German sociologist Wolfgang Strick who I hope will give a lecture to you one of these days, I mean, he has lectured at the LSE in places, pointing out that what is happening is a ferocious attack on democracy and that a serious alternative European Union structure is desperately needed because this one is not working. And that structure will necessitate democracy and more democracy on every level a provincial level, a city level, as well as a national level, and then a European level. And he argues that the one thing that cannot be said by anyone who wants to be taken seriously is that the European Union itself, as constructed, is a democratic institution. It isn't. It never has been. It could have been had they gone for a different constitution. But when people, when European citizens wanted to rediscuss the Constitution, and France and Holland rejected the last one, they made a, they tinkered a bit and then said, "Okay, okay, we've got a new Constitution." <clears throat> Nothing much happened. So unless there is a concerted effort by people who want the world to advance forward, not to regress. Activity uh, is absolutely vital, and that has been the big thing in Europe, in my opinion, from Greece 
and from Spain, and it could spread, that people believing that to start with, let us find an alternative to the neoliberal system without going beyond that at the moment, to just try and get people back on an even footing. And that hasn't happened. And with the failure of this to happen, and the wars, to return to them for a moment, which have wrecked the Middle East, and produced monsters. I mean, the Israeli state, it's not a very large group, but it was created initially with the help of states in that region, to try and fight for the Sunnis, and then got out of control, as always happens. Al-Qaeda itself was one such group, which was created to fight the Russians in Afghanistan and backed by the West, as you know. I'm tired of repeating it. And then went out of control and acquired an autonomy. And it is what it is. And these two groups are now rival groups fighting within the Muslim world, for hegemony, because they know perfectly well that there is nothing else left in that world. Handfuls of intellectuals, well-meaning liberals, all that. But in terms of a political alternative, there is very little left in that uh, world. And so the question of religion is raised again, even though I'm tired of arguing that no religion None of the three monotheistic religions are or ever have been monolithic. Huge debates, divides within Christianity from the earliest days. And to this day, you can see them within uh, uh, Judaism, where the orthodox Jewish sects do not accept the existence of Israel. They say that this goes against everything we believe in. It's their interpretation. Within Islam, the Shia, the Sunni, the Sufis, the Wahhabis, who have become very dominant, largely because they were Cold War pawns used by the United States via the Saudis to do give battle to communism in the Arab world and in Indonesia and in other Muslim countries. They preferred these people. And also, with this uh, vacuum, You've had a, a turn to religion in the West. I mean, similar reasons in Poland, when the Poles were struggling to uh, create a trade union called Solidarity, and many got very excited by this fact, including me, I admit, but very few noticed uh, that one of the first things Lech Walesa did was go on his knees and kiss the hands of the Polish cardinal who later became the pope. So there was a very clear link there. And I, I, I will just recall a very dear and old friend who was very angry with us young people at that time for being too taken in with solidarity. And that was Tamara Deutscher, the widow of the historian Isaac Deutscher. And I remember going to see her and saying, when she was from Poland, of course, and family uh, and Isaac Deutsch's family wiped out during the Judeocide. And she said, I don't like it when you people get too excited about things happening in Poland. And I said, but Tamara, why? This is a big working class struggle. And she said, please, dear, 
don't teach me the history of the Polish working class. And I said, I have no intention to, but you know, this is what's going on. And she said, I'll tell you, I was six years old in Łódź, and my father had taken me through the hand, and we were walking through the square. And he said, have you, he, my father said to me, little Tamara, have you noticed anything? And she said, what? And he said, there are no trams in the square today. And she said, yes. And he said, do you know why? Because the tram companies, for the first time ever, decided to employ a Jew. And the rest of the workers have gone on strike. Never forget that. So she said, I didn't forget it. I said, I know tomorrow, but you know, things have changed. But she never had any time for that sort of stuff. It really marked her. It's in relation to Poland, I hasten to point out, not to the rest of the world. So these old things do go deep. And brings me to the point where the what existed, you know, on the scale of Saddam, if you like, when discussing Iraq, what existed in Eastern Europe, not to mention the Soviet Union, were regimes I call social dictatorships. Especially after the reforms, you know, after the end of Stalinism proper, after the Khrushchev revelations, these were essentially weak regimes with a social structure, a political structure which was authoritarian, but with an economic structure that offered people more or less the same things they were offered under Swedish or British social democracy, but they were dictatorships. Now, with the collapse of these old regimes in Eastern Europe, the figures are very interesting. In Eastern Germany today, a poll taken three weeks ago, quite astonishing, 82% of the people in the eastern part of Germany say life was better for us before. And when they ask to specify, they say more community, more facilities, money wasn't the dominant thing. It's not that they are starving or anything, far from it. Cultural, cultural life was better. And they said and we were not treated like second-class citizens, as we still are because we are from the East. And this became a serious problem in Germany. So serious that in the second year after the reunification, Helmut Schmidt, the former German chancellor, and by no means a great radical, addressing the Social Democratic Party conference in Germany, said to them, I want to tell you one thing. The way we are treating the East Germans as if they were pariahs is completely wrong. If you want, there are more pariahs here descended from we know who, who were kept. But he said, if you ask me, but he said, whatever else you do, do not underestimate the culture produced in that part of, East, of Germany. And he said, to the shock of quite a lot of the delegates. If I had to choose a plinth, three plinths on which I would place the three great people of German culture, it would be Goethe, Heine, and Brecht. 
And there was a gasp when he said, when he said Brecht. Because he said he was a very fine lyrical poet of our country. So it's not that the West Germans didn't know and that some of them didn't try, but it didn't work. Because by this time, the whole culture in Germany has preserved cultural traditions better, in my opinion, than any other European country, by the way, in the amount spent on the arts and culture. But this, <clears throat> this prejudice against the East is quite deeply grained, which is why the German reaction to the revelations of Snowden that they were being under permanent surveillance and that their own security services were collaborating created shock and horror because one of the big ideological campaigns in West Germany had been that that's where they have the Stasi who spy on everyone all the time. Well, the Stasi didn't have the technical facilities to spy on everyone all the time. They did spy on various people, but nowhere near the scale of the surveillance which Snowden revealed uh, existed. That's the reason it struck the Germans very deep. But 82% saying, no, we preferred the old system. And interestingly enough, in terms of the largest number of non, not non, just non-religious people, on the atheism charts, what is the top country? It is um, Eastern Germany, 60%. I think in some uh, opinion polls more than that consider themselves to be no, sorry, I'm wrong. 52.1% of Eastern Germans say, I don't believe in God. The Czech Republic is second with 39.9%. And dear, beloved, lovely, secular France, it's only 23.3%. So secularism in France really does mean anything that's not Islamic. And if you go on the other side, the percentage which reveals, I know God really exists and I have no doubts about it. Highest is the Philippines, 83.6%. Chile, 79.4%. Israel, 65.5%. Poland, 62%. 62%, the United States, 60.6%, compared to which Ireland is a bastion of moderation, only 43.2%, etc., etc. So these, <clears throat> these religious figures are, of course, quite revealing in the sense of showing us what secularism is and what it is not. And it could be argued that these brave researchers and pollsters who didn't have the courage to visit the Islamic world uh, and ask these questions, and I don't totally blame them, but they might have been surprised in Turkey, for instance, and even in Indonesia at the number of people who would have uh, given them 
truthful answers if they hadn't feared they were agents working for some governmental agency or not. So religion is not simply confined to one part of the world or the other. Since the 90s, it's, I mean, in the United States, it was always very strong. Uh, the, the, what they don't give in these figures is that while 60.6 believe that God really exists, over 80% believe that angels exist. So the mystery is the 20% who believe angels exist, but not God. <clears throat> so um, religion is going to play a role unless something else emerges. So far it hasn't, and religion has survived for you know, over 2,000 years or 3,000 in the cases or more in the case of Judaism, 2,000 plus for Christianity, 1,000 and a half for Islam, the Roma not tend to be too religious, have been in Europe for a thousand years plus, still aren't recognized as European. So it's a, it's a mixed and confused world. And what can we hope from this world takes me back to ancient times. Uh, in fact, something which shows that problems don't change they take new forms, that in Sparta, in the second century before the Christian era, a huge fissure developed between the ruling elite and ordinary people following the Peloponnesian Wars. And those who were ruled, and not the rulers, demanded a change because the gap between rich and poor in Sparta had become so huge that it couldn't be tolerated by people. It did remind me of Greece, actually, when I reread this this morning. And so a triumvirate of three radical monarchs, because that's all there was at the time, Agis IV, Cleomenes III, and Nabis, created a structure to help revive the state on a new basis. Nobles were sent packing into exile. The dictatorship of magistrates was abolished. Slaves were given their freedom. All citizens were allowed to vote. And land confiscated from the rich were distributed to the poor. Something, of course, the ECB wouldn't tolerate today. And the early Roman Republic, threatened by this example, sent its legions under Quinus Flaminius to crush Sparta because of the example they were offering the rest of the Mediterranean world. According to the great Roman historian of antiquity, Livy, Nabis, the king of Sparta, responded. And you read these words, you feel two things, both the cold anger and the dignity. And he tells the Romans, Nabis, do not demand that Sparta conform to your own laws and institutions. You select your cavalry and infantry by their property qualifications and desire that a few should excel in wealth and the common people be subject to them. 
Our lawgiver did not want the state to be in the hands of a few, whom you call the Senate, nor that any one class should have supremacy in the state. He believed that by equality of fortune and dignity, there would be many to bear arms for their country. And on that optimistic note, from antique lands, thank you very much. Now, um, I'm very happy to take. I'm very happy to take questions if you have any. Be quick, uh, and I'll take three at a time. And if some questions are too foolish, I won't bother replying. So don't be offended. Don't take it personally. It never is. Okay. It's a very particular question about um, the. Um decline in civil liberties that's happening all over the Western world. Um, I'd just like to know what your um, opinion is about why it's happening now and it wasn't happening 50 years ago or it's not going to be happening in 50 years' time. Why now? Why is, it, why is, it, uh, why is there a massive decline now in your, in your view? In Europe? Of civil liberties. Yes, in Europe. Well, I think that, you know, essentially um, the I- irony is this that as long as the other world existed, the Soviet Union and that world, the West needed a counterbalance to that. And that counterbalance was provided by social democracy. So all the reforms pushed through by social democratic parties in Scandinavia, in Britain, in France, in Germany, uh, were partially designed to offer a model of democratic socialism. The word capitalism was never actually used. Instead of it, they used to use freedom till the collapse of communism when capitalism became a word used very regularly and very often. And so I think they decided in the United States to go for a different system altogether because the profits had been declining and to go for a, a system which could revamp pre-World War II uh, style regime, pre-1917 style uh, regimes and uh, capital uh, uh, exploitation on a global scale because for the first time they had the entire world market. And that's what they decided to do and that produced with it a political system, which I call the extreme center, uh, which is now getting you know, more and more embedded, though more and more hated within Europe. It's not necessarily a permanent thing, but it's only going to change when, you know, if you look, I hate to say this, but all the big changes that have happened in the world have been the result of wars. I'm not saying we need another war, please don't get me wrong. But the huge shifts that took place in the Arab world and in Europe after the First World War, including the vicious way in which the Germans were treated as if somehow they were worse than the uh, British and the French, uh, it was the victors the punishment of the victors. After the Second World War, you had a huge division of Europe, Eastern Europe, Western Europe, with the systems being put into place, as I described. And now you have problems in 
in both parts of Europe. I didn't have time to you know, go on about how East Europeans feel about how they are governed. Not good. The four most unpopular governments today on the global register, you know, the, the, the one that is the most unpopular is Bosnia-Herzegovina, a UN protectorate, hated by its people because of what has happened. They were used under Tito to a certain way of life. And they could take the wars because people they felt were threatening them. What they can't take is the peace because it offers them nothing. There's 30% unemployment. Romania is in the first six. Moldova, one or two others. It's interesting that it's in, it's in Eastern Europe where this happens. I mean, I was quite pleased to see that my, the country of my own birth, Pakistan, only came sixth. <laughs> in popular hatred. And <laughs> I thought that the statistics might possibly have been tampered with on their way out of Islamabad, but never mind. Uh, <clears throat> so uh, that's the system <clears throat> which we have, which is producing these clashes. And uh, it's not a permanent system, and it can be changed, but it's not easy. And the more governments that are elected to change it, the better. I mean, I think if Syriza can hang on in there, however difficult it is, till Podemos comes to power in Spain, that already makes it better. Uh, and other countries are considering now certain things, but it's not only, I'm talking about the left parties. On the other side, because of the extreme center, you have a huge rise of the right. I mean, all the French opinion polls are predicting that Marine Le Pen will win on the first ballot, the, the largest, I mean, there'll be a second round, but that she'll win, she'll be the first candidate. So civil liberties were okay before social democracy and the First World War, you know, before social democracy became powerful, though, weren't they? Yeah. Or they were in Britain and France and some other countries. So Who was? Civil liberties, you know, the freedom of speech and Well, look, this is a long subject which we'll yeah. come to some other time, but I better take some other questions. Yeah. Uh, thank you very much for this uh, talk. I, um, I couldn't help noticing some uncanny parallels between your diagnosis of the sort of political and ideological straitjacket in the West today and the politics of, of our kind of current enemy in, in Moscow, um, with, I guess, the exception that at least Putin acknowledges openly the cynicism and avarice of the regime, but says that it's in fact universal and so not worth fighting or you know, futile to fight. So you know, is it possible that um, instead of being an aberration, Putinism might actually be the, the logical endpoint of this uh, tyranny of the center, or, or you know, that, that, that it is a, um, you know, a logical extension of that? And, well, anyway, I just wanted to know your, your, your ideas of what's happening in Russia and the Ukraine right now. Uh, third question. Anyone else? Yeah? At the back. Yeah. I could get it. I'd love to know your view. Where are you? I'm here. <laughs> oh. I'd love to know your view of what you think that the Bush administration was thinking when it invaded Iraq in the Second War. Okay, um, that's it for the moment. Um, uh, on Russia and the Ukraine, 
Look, um, this is not a new dispute. You know, this is a dispute, if you want to really understand it properly, which goes back to the, uh, the Second World War, which goes back to the Cold War, which goes back to the attempts of the Soviet regime, especially when Khrushchev was in power, to try and end this divide by adding Russian provinces to the Ukraine, dominant, predominantly Russian provinces, and which has now uh, erupted for a very concrete reason. So very, very briefly, large numbers of Ukrainian partisans, though that's a sort of word I don't want to use, but they certainly do use it, fought with the Nazis during the Second World War. No doubt about that at all. Many of these people were kept going by the CIA and American intelligence services after the war was over, precisely because Operation Rollback had been prepared in the 1950s. We have a lot of evidence about this in the archives, but they still won't release all the archives which show the extent of US penetration of Eastern Europe on a clandestine level. But Ukraine was the weak link, the American agencies thought, where they could break Russia. Not totally wrong, but not right either. Uh, so in order, the Russians, of course, knew this was going on, and under Khrushchev uh, devised a plan to enlarge the Ukraine by giving it two large provinces, basically, of Russians to end this foolish divide. Okay. Comes the collapse of the Soviet Union, and Gorbachev, instead, when he's negotiating privately, or not privately, but not in public, with the Americans on the reunification of Germany, says to the Americans, okay, you can have the reunification of Germany on one condition. And that condition is that the Warsaw Pact we will dismantle, NATO should be dismantled, but if for your own reasons you don't want to do it, we want a cast-iron guarantee from you that NATO will not expand eastwards. And the Americans say, you have the guarantee. And he says, here it is. No signed treaty, nothing written, and signed by both sides. Even the Yalta Agreement was initialed by Stalin, Churchill, and Roosevelt. There was no paper at all, no signature, and the Russians foolishly, more or less, you know, having decided to give up the ghost, had went along with this. Systematically, that was violated once the new countries came into existence. And every time, first Yeltsin and even Putin said, OK, OK, the Baltic republics you can have in NATO, yes. But no Ukraine, because that is vital to Soviet strategic, uh, Russian strategic interests. And you know what that means. Given a guarantee, won't be. Then they start interfering again. And the Europeans make it very clear that the Ukraine, if it wants to be in NATO, will be in NATO. That triggered the whole damn thing off. Now, you can say that Putin shouldn't have behaved like the Americans do. And I'm quite happy to say that. 
But, you know, my saying it doesn't make any difference at all because these people defeat, uh, exist on the level of the state. So first taking the Crimea and then the unrest in the eastern provinces is basically the Russian response to the West saying, if this is how you want it, this is how we'll give it to you. Which is why Merkel and... Uh, Holland have flown, I think, to Moscow to talk to Putin and try and find a way out. Interestingly enough, both of them, like naughty school children, said, we are doing this without the permission of the United States, you know. <laughs> I don't believe it. Don't believe it for a minute that this big initiative, because the big interest in the Ukraine is the Americans to teach the Russians a lesson, bring them down. How dare the Russians try and reassert sovereignty? when Gorbachev and Yeltsin had agreed to play ball. So that is effectively what's going on. Um, Iraq splintering, uh, why is it bad? Well, look, um, it's bad because effectively it destroys a country, which I agree was only created after the First World War. But these countries, however they were created, developed an existence. And there was something as an Iraqi nationality. I mean, they could have called themselves Mesopotamia uh, to link with the old, but they didn't do that. And they developed this with the uh, agreement virtually of all the people in that region, because there was no way the old Ottoman Empire borders could be preserved. In the Ottoman days, it was an empire of cities apart from Egypt. You were an Ottoman citizen, and you could go to school in Jerusalem, go to school in Amman or Jerusalem, go to a, a further education in Cairo or Damascus. There was no restriction. It was sort of one world. That world was destroyed by the First World War, and these <clears throat> states were created. I mean, you know, what is Lebanon? It's a coastal strip torn out of Syria so that the French Empire could preserve something and a constitution which is now completely out of touch with reality. At the time they created it, it was 50-50, 50% Christian, 50% non-Christian. Today, they haven't dared have a consensus since 1936. That's when the last consensus was held, 1936, because it would produce a huge Muslim majority, and probably the Shias would be the dominant part. So these things have happened in that world, and the question is, do you want to create more tiny little uh, states in that region? And the reason for doing it is that no state emerges of which the Israelis feel scared. I think the Israelis play a central part in American foreign policy making. Unfortunately, and as many American experts have argued, it's not even in America's interest to go along with this. It's medium-term <coughs> interests. Why did Bush invade Iraq? Um, because he could. I mean, to, if you want to assert, you know, there's a big discussion after the end of communism and the Cold War. How are we going to preserve our hegemony in this new world where every state, with the barely an exception, is a capitalist world? And the question posed at Bush Sr.'s circle of advisors was, if we have trouble 
with a state whose social system is no different to ours fundamentally, are we prepared to use force to get rid of the government if we don't like it or if it's acting against our interests? And the answer they came up with, yes. And then they tried it on Iraq. Not that Saddam was prepared, wanted a fight with them. He was prepared to compromise. He was prepared to leave the country, to go into exile, to enable elections to happen. They wanted war. And I think it was this raw assertion of power and hegemony which um, pushed them in that direction. What were their aims? We still don't know. I mean, people who supported them, you know, people who once knew better, said it's to create a democratic Iraq. Well, I haven't heard them talk now for a long, long time. So, you know, you have this embittered little sect religious sectarian groups fighting each other, each vying for power. And we haven't talked about Libya today, which is more recent. The same damn business happened there. Once Gaddafi was got rid of, uh, what were they going to do? I asked a Libyan friend who was a professor of history at uh, Tripoli University not so long ago. I said, how come? Because the movement initially against Gaddafi was genuine. There's no doubt about that. People wanted a different type of government, more democracy in reality. And I said, why did NATO need to bomb Libya for six whole months if the whole country was against him? And he said, well, what happened? We, the tribes did want to get rid of him, but when the West came in, and he said Britain and France had clandestine armies there, small numbers of commandos and this, that, and the other, and NATO bombing. Then these people said, we've made a mistake because the last people we want in the country is the West, and we'll fight them. He said it was their decision to fight them that prolonged the war uh, and made NATO bomb six, for six months. So I said, do you have any idea how many people were killed? And he said, well, the figures vary between 20 and 30,000 Libyan people were killed in the NATO bombings alone. And now Libya is divided into tiny little principalities, and two groups control the group that controls Tripoli is Al-Qaeda. And further down the coast, the strongest base, the most stable base, is that of the Islamic State. So that has been the result of a NATO intervention. And still they will not think. I think I have to really end it here, because I've got a few books to sign. Thanks for listening. For more, go to lrb.co.uk. 